Hey everybody, this is Troy, one of the pastors at First Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. And we are committed to join God in the remaking of all things. I pray that this sermon is a blessing and helps you join God today. If we can serve you in any way, we would love to. Please get a hold of us at lafayettenaz.org. Have a great day. ...or a device that you can power on. I'm going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning. And it's a rather lengthy passage of Scripture. But a passage of Scripture that I find pretty compelling and quite interesting. We're in a sermon series called The Hills We'll Die On. The Hills We Will Die On. And during this sermon series, what we're doing is we're talking about the core convictions that guide and animate us as First Church of the Nazarene. And last week, we started this sermon series off by talking about a core conviction that's rooted deep within us. And the conviction is this, you were made for this. You were made for this. We really do believe that you were made for this, that God designed you and made you so that you could have a unique purpose in his work of restoring the world to how it was originally intended. You were made for this. And today we're going to be talking about a different hill. And in order to get there, I'd like it if we could, if uh, you could get your Bibles and turn to... 2 Kings chapter 5, power up that device. Hold that ready. And teach a little bit of history. Teach a little bit of history. So, for over 300 years, explorers of four nations had been looking for a water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River. For 300 years, explorers had been looking for a route that would connect the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River. Everybody believed that this water route existed. Everyone assumed that there was this way to get from the Mississippi all the way to the Pacific Ocean. It was was really important. President Thomas Jefferson had commissioned some people by the name of Lewis and Clark and the corpse of discovery for that moment. And they declared that they should find this route. And when they found it, wealth, prosperity, and power would be theirs. And so finding this water route was the key to commerce. It was the key to the growth of this country. It was important to the French. It was important to the British. It was important to the Spanish. It was important to the Americans who had just purchased the uh, Louisiana Territory. It was really important. And whoever discovered it, they were going to be the ones who would end up winning in this new settling of America. So Lewis and Clark set off to find this water route. Fifteen months of really difficult travel, this seamless, seemingly endless string of back-breaking upstream paddling had led to the moment where they really felt like they had found this thing. They dipped their hands down into the trickle of a stream that formed the beginning 
of the Missouri River, the water that they were dipping their hands into would eventually flow all the way down into the Gulf of Mexico. They had discovered in that moment what no other person of European descent in the history of the world had discovered before them. And they thought in their minds, this is what they thought. They thought the most challenging part of our journey is over. We, we're, we found this thing. Lewis believed this. He believed he was going to walk up the hill from where that little head stream was. He was going to walk up the hill and look out and see a gentle slope down to the Pacific Ocean. He thought in his mind, after 15 months of rowing upstream, I'm going to look out and see this finish line that I've been cherishing. Now, what we know now is they were about to be really, really disappointed. Because what happened as Lewis made his way up that hill, what happened is that the experts were completely wrong. All of the experts who said there is a waterway that connects the Pacific with the Mississippi, we know it exists. Somebody just needs to find it. They were wrong. Because what he saw was the Rocky Mountains. It was the Rocky Mountains. And the mountains stretched out for miles, as far as he could see. One set of peaks right after another. There was no Northwest Passage. There was no river that he was able to navigate to get from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean. There was no water route. The driving assumption of the brightest minds, the most adventurous entrepreneurial and creative leaders of the day were wrong. And in that moment, Lewis realized something. What got him here and what got him to that place was he was an expert at navigating rivers. Great on water. What got him to that place was not going to get him over those mountains. What got him here wasn't going to get him there. That's the second hill that we'll die on. What got you here is not going to get you there. At our church, we have a mission. We have a mission at our church. We all agree that this is what is most important. It's our way of uniquely phrasing the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing one another in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission of all Christians. And our church kind of has our own take on it. We say that our mission is this, transforming ordinary people into passionate followers of Jesus. And what we want you to understand is that God is in the life transformation business. God is in the life transformation business. And And transformation means what got you here to this place in your life will not be enough to get you into that new place, that new spot. You have to change. You have to grow. You have to be transformed because what got you here will not get you there. Hill number one that will die on, you are made for this. Hill number two... What got you here will not get you there. So if I could this morning, I'd like to talk to you about the pathway of transformation. 
the pathway of transformation. And as a lens for that, let's look at that passage in Scripture from 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to read a good chunk of Scripture. So follow along with me if you would. So incredible story. Incredible story. All right. It's about a guy by the name of Naaman. And Naaman was a general for the king of Aram. He was a great man and highly regarded by his master. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. And this man was a mighty warrior. But he had a skin disease. Now, Aramean raiding parties had gone out and had captured this young girl from the land of Israel. And she served as Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. And then Aram's king said, go ahead, I'll send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along ten kikars of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Ten changes of clothing, that's more than Ben has on a Sunday morning. He brought the letter to Israel's king, and it read, Along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman, so you can cure him of his skin disease. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes, and he said, What? Am I God to hand out death and life? But this thing, this king writes me, asking me to give someone of his, cure someone of his skin disease, you must realize that he wants to start a fight with me. So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, why? Why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me, then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent out a messenger who said, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River, and then your skin will be restored and become clean. But Naaman went away in anger. He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out. Stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Check this out. Wave his hand over the bad spot. And cure the skin disease. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away. And he proceeded to leave in anger. And Naaman's servants came up to him and they spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet has said to you to do something difficult... Wouldn't you have done it? All he said was wash and become clean. So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. This is God's word for us today. And it illustrates the pathway of transformation. And I think all of us long for transformation. We want to be healed. 
We long for renewal. We look at our sick bodies. Or when we look at our sick finances. Or when we look at our broken relationships. We, we want that to be changed. We, we long for transformation. We really want to be healed. We long for renewal. And what happened in this story is so true of what often happens in our lives is that in our longing for, desper- for, for transformation, we get to a point where we are so desperate for transformation that we open ourselves up to God's work in our lives. So it's true that desperation precedes transformation. And so as we gather as the people of God every Sunday, a lot of us are faced with desperate situations. We are faced with desperation. For some of us, we're just desperate for a good job. Others of us are desperate for a relationship to be healed. We're desperate for direction in our lives. Have you ever been desperate for something? If you have, it's good. Because desperation is the first step of transformation. Because it reveals how powerless we actually are. You can tell how serious someone is for transformation, for true transformation. You can tell how serious they are with how diligent they are in following through with their moments of desperation. And if they're not willing to go there, then they're probably not desperate enough yet. They're probably not yet ready for transformation. My children on a Saturday at 10 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon or every moment in between will say, I'm so hungry. I'm starving. I'm just so hungry. And if I was to say in response, well, there are some carrots in the refrigerator. There's also some celery they would say, no, no. And the truth is revealed in that moment, well, then you're just not desperate. You're not desperate. You are wanting your longing to be met in a way that you can control. You're not desperate enough yet. And that's true of us as adults as well. We often want transformation to happen in a way that we can control it. We want to be the kind of people who can determine how and when that transformation happens in our lives. And that's what's happening in this story. We meet this person named Naaman. And Naaman is longing for transformation, but he wants to control how it happens. So Naaman is this powerful man. He's got it all together. He's the general of an army, and his army always wins. People look up to him. They respect him. He's strong and powerful and has a good name in the community. He has it all together, but, and there's always a but, but he has leprosy. He has a skin disease. And like Naaman, everything in your life can look really, 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 really good. You can look like you have it all together, but on the inside, you're sick. You have leprosy. Now, leprosy doesn't really exist that much in the world anymore, but it's pretty common back in the ancient Near East. And leprosy was this skin disease that would run its course over 30 years, and it was nasty, nasty, nasty. 
Leprosy grew to the point there was no cure. It grew to the point where fingers and toes and limbs would just fall off. They would disintegrate. And it was crazy painful. And physically it was very painful, but the worst was that it was socially painful. You were distanced and you marginalized all because you were sick. And so Naaman looks really powerful. He looks really good, but on the inside he's broken and he's hurting. And all of us, we also might look pretty good, but inside we're, we're pretty sick. I mean, when you get beneath our clean cars and our clean social media accounts and our clean eating, we're broken. And we would really love change. We want to be transformed. And Nathan, or Naaman, as a, as a general in the army, is constantly wearing a lot of armor, and he pro- He gives off this really strong exterior, but below that armor, he's so weak. He's so weak, and there's only two people who know it. His wife knows about it, and his wife told her servant about what was going on. So maybe Naaman would come home from a really tough day at work, and he's suffering, and his skin is irritable, and his wife knows about it, and she can't handle it, so she shares that burden with someone else, and that person can't handle it, but decides to advocate for him. And so this person knows of someone who lives in this faraway city who's a prophet, who could cure Naaman of this disease. And so she says, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter. And Naaman is so desperate that he takes the king up on this offer, and the king writes this letter to the king of Israel. Hey, can you do something for this guy? He sends the letter, and the letter said this. When, the, when, the, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you might cure him of the leprosy. The king gets the letter, but the king doesn't have good reading comprehension, and he misreads it. He reads the letter as you is referring to me. And the king thinks, this is a setup. I can't heal anybody. I don't have that kind of power. This guy's looking to pick a fight with me. He wants to quarrel with me. He's misread a letter. You've probably never misread anything in your life. You probably send text messages to people, and there's never, ever any misreading of those text messages. Like maybe, you know, somebody did something for you, or, or just out of the blue, you wanted to compliment someone. So you say to them with much enthusiasm, oh, thank you so much. Wow, that was just wonderful. With a lot of exclamation points. Maybe some emojis. And they respond back, thanks. Period. No exclamation point. And you think to yourself, come on, I, I need, at least need a couple of exclamation points. What's wrong with you? Like, what did I? You misread things. It's nothing new. The king misreads it, so he tears his robes. Elisha hears about the king tearing his robes. Elisha says to the king, hey, chill out, man. Chill chill out, just send him my way, just send him my way, and I'll show him that there really is a God in Israel. So the king sends Naaman to Elisha. He shows up, Naaman shows up with all of his chariots, his horses. It's royalty, but it's also irony because he has so much strength and so much power, but he's just so weak. He's just so weak. And he comes to the door All of these chariots and horses show up at this little shack of a house and they get to the front door and knock. No one opens. No one opens. They wait, knock again. No one, the second time, 
No one, Naaman's not used to waiting. No one opens a second time. One more time, they knock. And finally, the door opens, but it's not Elisha. It's one of Elisha's servants. It's like his assistant. And so the assistant says to Naaman, hey, I got you. Here's how you get clean. You see the Jordan River over there. Go into the Jordan River and dip down seven times. You'll be good. You'll be good. And Naaman is mad. He's outraged. In his mind, he's thinking, I traveled this far and you can't even welcome me face to face. Show me some respect. You send your assistant out to me to give me instructions. And he starts to walk away. He starts to walk away. And in this moment, we learn something about transformation. We learn how it works and where it begins. Because it always begins at this point. How is it that transformation begins? It begins with Naaman laying down his need for control. That's where it always starts. Change, transformation within us always begins when we lay down our need to control the situation. Naaman's used to being in control. He's a general. He speaks a word, and lots of people start marching. But now someone is telling him what to do, and he can't stand it. Who do you think you are telling me what to do? So Naaman became furious, and he turned away. And listen to the words that he says. I thought that for me, he would surely come out. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. He's surprised. And the question in this story at this point is, will Naaman be able to be humble enough to submit himself to this process so that he can be transformed? Because at the core of transformation is our willingness to be humble. Our willingness to embrace humility. Humility says I'm yielding myself to something. And I don't totally understand this something that I'm yielding myself to, but I'm going to yield. I'm going to submit myself to it. But Naaman's not there yet. Humility, now listen church, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's having a correct assessment of yourself. And the assessment is this. I need help. I need help. And we all do. We all need help. And we all need someone who can help us. Humility is the reminder that we just can't do this in our own strength. We need some help. And there is this new reality that God had for Naaman. There's this new reality that God has for us, but we got to be open to that because what got us here is not what's going to get us there. We have to be open to letting go of control. But in our story, Naaman's not at that point yet, so he walks away in rage. He's upset. He's upset because the instructions are to go into the Jordan River, and he protests, why that river? It's so dirty. I don't want to go into that river. Look at it. It's gross. But the question is, Naaman, how desperate are you? 
How desperate are you? Do you really want change? Do you really want transformation? Because transformation requires humility. That's the first thing it needs. But the second is this. It means that we, and it requires that we will do what we don't want to do. Transformation requires that we do what we don't want to do. And this is a hard word. Naaman in the story wants a quick solution. We all want a quick fix. I thought he would just wave his hand over the leprosy and it would be gone. Or maybe in his mind he was thinking, can I at least get into some nice water? Like a spa or something. You know, like submerge myself into something that looks pretty good. But the prescription for his healing was seven times you dip into that river. There's the Jordan. Start dipping. And for those of us who are, in the, who are accustomed to the Bible, I think we have this picture of the Jordan River that's really idyllic. That it's like this mountain, clear, flowing stream that's just all pure and lovely. It is not that at all. It is much closer to the Wabash and like July or August when you go down to the levee and you can smell it from miles away murky and stinky. I mean, who wants to do the backstroke through that nastiness? Like, who, who wants to be about all of that? And so I don't fault Naaman. Man, that river is dirty. But his servant says, hey, if he would have asked you to do something really magnificent, you would have done it. All he's asking you to do is just to get wet. Can't you get wet, Naaman? But he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. And when you look at the Bible, the story of the people of God is this. We often don't want to do things God wants us to do. We often don't want to. Willie James Jennings wrote a beautiful, incredible commentary in the book of Acts. And he says this. In the book of Acts, almost no one is doing what they want. Almost no one is. Because every time God comes to his people and gives them instructions on what God wants them to do, they don't want to do it. God says to Ananias, hey, go lay your hands on Saul and pray for him so that Saul would be healed. And Ananias says, no, I don't want to do that. And God comes to Peter and says to Peter, hey, the word of the Lord is not just for you and the Jewish people. The word is also for Gentiles, so go over to Cornelius' house. He eats all manner of things, and I want you to eat with him. And Peter says, no, I don't want to do that. And it's part of our story as well, that when God says, do something, we often say, are you sure I don't really want to? But transformation, in order to get over there, it requires us to do what we don't want to do. So the reflective question for us as a church this morning The reflective question for you and I is just simply this. What don't you want to do? What conversation don't you want to have? Who don't you want to see? What don't you want to do? For some of us, it's just being honestly vulnerable. Not to everyone, but to someone. We want transformation, but we want God to wave his hand over us in the privacy of our own home so we don't have to go through that difficult process just heal me that way but God isn't just after our healing God is after the transformation of our heart because we can get to and treat the symptom 
And we can have that healed, but we got to get down into the roots in order for the real issue to be addressed. God is looking for the formation of our character, and that takes vulnerability. And it takes doing what we don't want to do. For some of us, that means seeing a counselor or a psychiatrist or a therapist, and we think in our mind, God, just wave your hand over me so I can be healed. I don't want to have to submit myself to that kind of a process, but God is trying to form something in us. Or we want transformation in our finances, so maybe the invitation that we don't want to do is, why don't you just get honest with someone and tell that someone just how much debt you are actually in so that you don't have to continue living in the shame that shackles you because whatever you can't name imprisons you, but whatever you can name in the name of Jesus and say, this is where I'm at, then transformation, then it can happen. It takes doing what we don't want to do. I had to learn this the hard way. I had to learn it the hard way. It is an absolute joy to be a pastor. It is also an absolute punch in the gut on a daily basis. And there would be times, sometimes in seasons of pastoral ministry, where the gut punches would, would, would add up and they'd take some tolls. And I'd kind of start to go down into a little bit of a hole. Just down into a little bit of a hole. It wasn't a good place to be. It wasn't a healthy place to be. I finally called up one of my good friends. Talked about this issue. What should I do? What should I do? And he said, do you tell anybody about this? I said, I'm telling you? (laughs) He said, how come you've never told me about this before? I said, I don't know. So I said, what should I do? He said, here's what you do. When you feel this way, you tell me. You tell me. How about you let someone else in? That's what I started to do. I didn't want to, but I did. And it's not that I don't go down into those holes anymore. It's just that they don't last for a few days anymore. Now they last for about a few minutes or a few hours. I had to do something in order to get there. I was here. I wanted to get there. I had to do something that I did not want to do. Naaman, will you do what you don't want to do? And thank God he had someone around him who assisted him and said, just get wet. Just get wet. And we all need those people who will speak the word of God to us. And so Naaman remembers that the messenger said, dip in the Jordan River seven times. So he dips in. First time. Comes out. Nothing. Dips down again. Second time. Nothing. Dips down a third time, maybe plunges himself a little bit harder. Nothing. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, I am wasting my time and embarrassing myself. Look at me. I am a general, and this is what I'm doing. Fourth time, dips down. Nothing. Dips down a fifth time. 
Nothing. Probably the servants who were accompanying him were like praying on their knees, please, God, if this does not work, this is a bad trip home. Heal the boy, please. Dips down a sixth time. Not a single thing. Dips down that seventh time. Down and up. And when he comes up out of the water, the Bible says that his skin is just as soft as a newborn baby's behind. And in the dipping down and in the coming up, we learn the thing, third aspect of transformation. It's this. It's the simple, regularly repeated acts of obedience that transform us. It's the little things. It's the dip in. And some of you would say, listen, I gather to worship, but nothing is happening. Nothing is changing. Do it again. Dip in again. Or you would say, I read my Bible, and I mean, my heart's not changing. I don't see any difference in my life. Dip in again. Do that, do that again. Or you would say to me, I pray, but nothing happens when I pray. It's like I'm talking to myself. Dip in, dip, dip in again. God is trying to form you and change you and shape you through the small, regularly repeated practices, the small yeses of obedience that you say to God. You don't feel it, keep going. No change, keep on dipping. No healing yet, keep dipping down. No word from God spoken to you, keep going. It's the little practices, the little practices. So when we gather as a church on a Sunday, what what are we doing? We're dipping. When we pray, what's happening? We're dipping. When we share a meal at a community table, what's going on? We're dipping. When we ask somebody in a small group, hey, can you pray for me? What are we doing? We're, We're dipping. It's the simple things that are repeated that transform us. You know, I've heard somebody say, you've heard it too, the cliche, the cliche definition of insanity is what? It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. That's the cliche definition of insanity, but listen, that's also the real definition of spiritual growth. Doing the same things over and over again and every single time expecting a different result. That's spiritual growth. There's no magic to this. There's no wave a hand over something and have it be healed. There's dip, 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 dip. And when you dip in and dip in and dip in, you are positioning yourself for healing, for transformation. So stick to it and don't quit. And I know you're tempted to give up after the third or fourth time and there's no change. I know you're done with it, but don't be done with it because God's not done with you. And it's the simple, small, repeated acts of obedience that change you, that get you there from where you are here. And this whole story points to Jesus. I know Jesus doesn't show up in this story, but the whole story points to it. Because many years after Naaman dipped into that Jordan River, Jesus dipped into that exact same body of water. He dipped down and he dipped back up. But when Jesus dips down, he doesn't dip down as somebody who has leprosy on his skin. He dips down as the pure lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. It is Jesus' willingness to identify with all of that stuff, all of the dirt and the brokenness and the sin He takes it all on, so much so that when he's raised up on a cross 
to deal with the brokenness and the sin in our hearts because Elisha could heal Naaman's skin, but he could never deal with his sin, can't deal with ours. But Jesus gets to the root of the problem. Our sin, that stuff that keeps us alienated from God, alienated from each other, alienated from ourselves, he crucified the leprosy of our hearts. And because he came up out of the water, you can come out clean, whole, renewed, remade. And we're invited to dip, to do what we don't want to do so that the ongoing work of transformation can take place in our lives. I'm going to invite Ben to come forward, and we're going to prepare our hearts in just a moment to come to the table. We absolutely believe at this church, you're made for this. We believe you're made for this. But we also believe what got you there or what got you here will not get you there. You have to be transformed. You have to be changed. And transformation requires humility. It means we do what we don't want to do. And it takes some practices, regularly small and often repeated things that will get us there.